Happy New Year. Here we are, we're at the beginning of a new year, and new years are exciting. In some sense, today is just like any other day, but there's something special about New Year's Day. Well, every day is a new day that we get from God. Every day is a new day where we can make changes in our life. There's something unique about New Year's Day, right? The calendar turns, if you still use a paper and pen like my wife does, then you have a blank calendar that you get to begin filling up with new activities and new events and new things that you want to accomplish in this new year. And we all have an opportunity to turn over a new leaf. The past isn't necessarily erased or forgotten, but we have an opportunity in the new year to start again, to try something new, to accomplish something that we've had on our list for a long time, and this is going to be the year that we finally do it. In this New Year's journey, we have an opportunity together as a church to begin a new chapter. For many of us, New Year's means making resolutions. And how many of you guys have made New Year's resolutions? Anyone? A few? Wow, not too many. Wow, not too many resolutions, people. I just think you don't want to admit it because if you admit you make the resolution, then someone's going to hold you accountable for that resolution, aren't they? But that's okay because I know whether you'll raise your hands or not, many of you are thinking about things you want to change. Maybe it's something external that you want to change in your life. Maybe this is going to be the year you get into better shape or that you lose that extra weight you've been carrying around. Or maybe this is going to be the year that you're going to learn a new skill or a new hobby. Or it's going to be the year that you finally complete that achievement that you've been looking forward to. Maybe you're going to run your first 5K or marathon. Or maybe you're going to finally go back to school and finish the degree that you've been wanting to finish. Or maybe you're going to get more involved in the church. Or this is going to be the year you get involved in that community group that you've been thinking about getting involved in. And those are all kind of external resolutions that we can make. And there's also internal resolutions that we may make. Maybe there's a relationship we want to improve with a family member or our spouse or our kids. Or maybe we're going to resolve to watch less TV and read more, get into a better rhythm of sleep. Or maybe it's that we want to improve our relationship with God. We want to improve our devotional life. There's no time like New Year's to start a new Bible reading plan. And if you don't do that, I would actually encourage you to do that. It's a great habit to get into and a great rhythm to get into in your life. But as we plan our resolutions, as we think about the changes we want to make in our lives, there's very few changes that we actually make on a whim. If we think about it, most resolutions we've spent time thinking about. It's a change that we know we need to make in our lives. We've done the research, we've thought about how we're going to make the change, and we've created a plan. And the most successful resolutions actually have well-detailed plans that we carried out. So you've thought about the change you want to make, you've made the resolution to make that change, but have you actually gotten started yet? What are you waiting for? It's like 10.30 on New Year's Day. (laughs) No time like the present. But here's the thing. Making a resolution is to resolve to do something. It requires action. It requires taking what we know. It requires taking what we've decided to do and putting it into action. Because if we never take what we know, if we never take what we've decided to do and put it into action we actually haven't resolved to do anything. And resolutions take planning, 
They take starting, but they take something else if they're going to be successful. They take commitment. Think about starting a new routine at the gym. If that's your resolution for this year, let me tell you how it's going to go. You get the day off today because the gyms are closed, so enjoy your last day. and You can start tomorrow morning. And you're going to get up tomorrow morning with all sorts of energy, and you're going to go to the gym, and you're going to work out harder than you have ever worked out before. And you're going to feel great. And then Tuesday morning, you're going to get up, and you're going to go back, and you're going to feel great. And here's what happens. The pain cycle in your muscles takes 48 hours to kick in. So Wednesday, you're going to feel awful. And you're not going to get out of bed. But if you want to go through with your resolution to get into better shape, you need to get out of bed Wednesday morning. You need to ignore the pain in your muscles. You need to drag yourself out of bed and get to the gym. Because if we're going to form new rhythms in our life, if we're going to see our resolutions through, then we have to push through the uncomfortableness and the pain. We must stick with it long enough until our new practices become routine and habit. And we have personal resolutions that we make, which is what we've been talking about. And maybe there's resolutions we make as a family. Maybe we're going to be more committed this year to having a more regular family dinner time or a family devotion time. Or maybe you need to get into a better rhythm of date night with your spouse. But what about as a church? Can we make resolutions as a church together? I would suggest that today is actually the beginning of a resolution that we've made as a church. This New Year's, we are taking a step towards unity and a unified purpose. And just like over the generations, as we see in our display, we've listened to music differently, depending what generation you grew up in. You may have listened to record players, or you moved on to eight tracks and tapes, and then you made the hard transition to CDs just to have to move to MP3s, And now all of our music doesn't even exist. It floats someplace up in the cloud. Just like the way we've listened to music over the years has changed. But the song hasn't. The format for how we deliver our songs and our messages needs to change. If it's going to be heard by a culture that listens very differently than it used to. And it's okay if some of you still prefer to listen to records at home. I know they sound better, I'm with you. And I know at least one of you out there still has an A-track player in their car. It's okay, it's a judgment-free zone, we won't judge you. There's a time and a place for all of those things and it's okay that you enjoy different styles and different forms. And there's going to be a time and a place for us as a church to explore different styles in different forms. But as we gather together today as one church in one service, we're taking the first steps of putting our plan of action into place. We're taking the first steps of our resolution to follow God's plan for our church to reach a changing community and a changing culture in a next generation with the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. But how are we going to do that? How are we going to move forward successfully with our resolution? 
How are we going to follow God's plan for Bethlehem's next chapter? How are we going to reach this changing community and this next generation for Christ? Well, as we always should, we can actually turn to the Bible to find the answer to that question. And the answer to that question is found in the Apostles Paul in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. It's the book that we now call Ephesians. Let's give you a little bit of background on Ephesians. Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus, planting the church there, as well as churches in the surrounding towns. So he knows them really well. And he spent the three years there, they say between 53 and 56 AD. In this letter that he writes to them, he writes during his first prison sentence in Rome, which was 60 to 62 AD. So he's writing to them somewhere between four and six years after he's left. And word has gotten back to Paul that the church in Ephesus has begun to drift a little bit from their purpose. And divisions are beginning to grow among them for really non-essential issues. We have to remember that it's a letter, and it's really meant to be read all the way through, which is something, as you maybe have some free time today or tomorrow, I would encourage you to do. It won't take you that long to get through it. But the letter breaks roughly into two halves. In the first half, what we would now call chapters 1 to 3, it's just filled with central and necessary core doctrines, everything we need to know to understand our need for salvation and God's plan for salvation. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there's no greater display of the doctrines of the Christian faith than that found in the first three chapters of the letter to the Ephesians. In the first half of the letter ends with what is arguably one of the most beautiful, the most encouraging, and the most doctrine-filled passages in the entire Bible. It's Paul's prayer for the church in, in Ephesus. And he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You just want to take a deep breath and rest in the truth of that prayer. And it sounds like it would be the perfect ending to the book. And it's tempting for us to want to stop at the end of chapter 3 and just build our lives and our church around those program, around those verses. It's tempting for us to just structure all of our programs and experiences to help us to help fill ourselves with this knowledge about God. And to just to help us experience his grandeur 
But the problem with that is that the letter doesn't end. And the letter doesn't end there. Because if it ended there, it would be like a New Year's resolution that was never acted upon. It would be like buying our gym membership, going going and meeting with the trainer for the first time to have them write out an entire plan for us, and then never showing up to actually work out. It doesn't end there because good doctrine is simply not enough. It doesn't end there because being filled with the knowledge of God is actually not enough. We have to remember that it's a letter. There was no break at the end of chapter 3. There was no break in the original manuscript after his amen. He just launches right on into what we now call chapter 4. And he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And in that paragraph what we now consider Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we find God's plan for us to become one church with one purpose. In those six verses, we find God's plan and God's desire to restore unity, which is what is necessary for us if we're going to reach a next generation in a changing community with the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. The end of chapter 3 is like this beautiful mountaintop experience. And if you've ever been to the top of a mountain, you know how tempting it can be to just want to sit there and rest and take in the views. Last week I was on the West Coast and I had the opportunity the day after Christmas to go snowshoeing in the Cascades. This is a picture from the top of the mountain that we snowshoed up. And it was the day after Christmas, I was with my brother-in-law and our 12-year-old nephew, and Christmas with my wife's entire family was, let's just say, hectic and a little loud, because there were a lot of little kids. And it was great, don't get me wrong, but we got to the top of the mountain, and my brother-in-law and I look at each other, and we just said, quiet, peace, let's just sit here for a while and enjoy the view. And here's what happened. We sat there for a little too long. And when we got up to go down the mountain, our clothes, which had become wet from snow and sweat, had frozen. And it was a little hard to start moving again because we had to break through the frozen clothes. But our faith is like that. If we just stay at the top of the mountain, our faith will freeze too. In Matthew 17, we have the story of Christ's transfiguration, which is when he went up to the top of the mountain, he brought three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John with him. And Moses and Elijah appear, 
in Christ's holiness is revealed to the disciples. And Peter's response at the top of the mountain is, wow, could we just stay here? Why don't I build you guys tents so we don't ever have to leave? Peter was ready to forget about all the problems that existed at the bottom of the mountain. But Christ said no. He said we have to go back down. And Christ gave up his glory again to go back down the mountain to engage with a father and his son who had been consumed by an evil spirit and to bring healing. And as evangelicals, we are really, really good at creating these mountaintop experiences where we can learn about, about God and dwell in his glory. We create conferences and retreats, worship services, youth groups and club ministries, Bible studies, Sunday school classes and life groups, which can all be wonderful. But the question we have to ask is what happens when we leave the conference? What happens when we come home from the retreat? What happens on Monday morning? How does what we're studying and what we're learning affect the rest of our lives? And how does what we're studying and what we're learning affect the lives of those who live around us in our neighborhoods and in our communities, in our schools and in our workplaces? As Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, it's a glorious experience to be on the top of that mountain. But we must go down to the valleys, to all the problems of daily life and living. Around us is this godless world which cannot know about Christ unless you and I tell them about Christ. Either by preaching or by mixing with them in our work, in employment, in the ordinary activities of life. We must show what we know and what we have. And above all, show him in whom we have believed. And so Paul pushes us forward. He pushes us down the mountain with the first phrase of chapter 4. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Then, or as other translations will begin this passage, therefore, says, therefore, in light of everything we've just talked about, in light of everything I've said, don't just sit there. Go do something. Therefore is one of these great theological words. Whenever we see it, we recognize that the author is trying to push us forward into the life that we're supposed to live because of everything we've learned. What Paul is saying is that you can't separate doctrine from practice. We can't stay at the end of chapter 3 and we can't stay on the top of the mountain because if we're not careful, we'll spend all of our time learning and debating doctrine and we're going to forget about all of those around us who so desperately need the message of the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. If we're not careful, we get caught up in trying to create these perfect experiences where we can just dwell together, experiencing God's grandeur. And then we never come down from the mountain 
to address all of the ugliness in the world around us. If we're not careful, we move from Sunday school to church to life groups to midweek Bible studies and to prayer meetings. And before we know it, we've become the evangelical equivalents of monks and hermits. So focused on our personal relationship with God that we don't ever become the peacemakers in the world that he's called us to be. This is why we encourage all of our life groups to incorporate service elements into their rhythms and to be praying for unchurched friends and co-workers that they can be reaching out to and inviting to come in because we never want to lose our focus on the community that's around us that so desperately needs the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. So the first step in implementing a new resolution is planning, and we've done that. The second step is starting, which is what we're doing today. But if we're going to have success in our resolution as a church to come together as one in unity and with purpose, we will only have success if we stay committed to it. Planning is necessary, starting is important, but commitment is what's critical. We must stick with our new plan long enough that we can work through all the uncomfortableness that some of us will feel. We must stick with it long enough until our new practices become routine and become habit. Because even though changing from vinyl to digital is a big jump, the change in the format does not change the message that we're trying to deliver. And because it takes time to work through the uncomfortableness, because it takes time for our new practices to become routine, we're going to be spending the next two months or so taking a deep dive into these first six verses of the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians in order to give us time to focus on the unity that God desires for his church, to allow that unity to become part of our routine and our practice. This is why we've asked our life groups over the next couple months to follow the sermon series not because there's anything wrong with doing individual studies or studies about needs that we have in our lives or in our demographics, but because during this season, we want to focus on becoming unified as a body of believers. And so let's take a first step in that today. Let's dig into those first three verses of the fourth chapter of Ephesians a little bit. Paul begins with this. He says, I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be easy for us to kind of tune out at this point and say, that's all great, that's fine, but I've got this figured out. But Paul says, I'm serious about this. I urge you. I'm not suggesting this is an option for you to consider. In various other translations, it's translated as, I beg you, I exhort you, 
I implore you, I encourage you, I urge you. This is not a take it or leave it request that Paul's making. What he's saying is this is central, this is serious, this is essential to your faith. And his urge, his urging for them and for us to move forward is because of his intense love for those who were surrounding them in their community who still had not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Paul felt deeply for them because he knew many of them, because he had lived there for three years. So he's urging them. He says, don't focus on yourselves. Don't just focus on what you know. You have to get out there. You have to put your faith into action. You have to make your faith practical. So I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We've got to never forget that Christianity is not just what we know. It's not just who we know. It's not just what we've been saved from, but Christianity is a way of life. Christianity is how God calls us to live day by day. We've received great blessing and privilege from God. But with that blessing and privilege comes obligation. The Bible says to those who have been given much, much is expected. And we have been given much. Our identity in Christ must lead us to a practical response. Because the way we live our lives, whether good or bad, is the greatest witness we have to our community and to our culture. If we just resolve in our minds to do something, if we just went to bed last night, resolved that this year would be the year This year would be the year that we finally lost the weight or that we finally got into shape or that we finally finished that degree or that we finally learned that new skill. But then when we got up this morning, we didn't do anything differently. Then we really haven't put the resolution into practice. And as we begin a new year, as we resolve to move forward together, As a church, we need to consider where the disconnects are between what we know and what we do. We need to consider where the disconnects are between our knowledge and our attitudes, our behaviors, and our practices. As we seek to become one church with one purpose, we must look for where the breakdowns are in the unity among us. Because it's those breakdowns in our unity. It's those breakdowns between what we know and our attitudes and our practices that will drive our community away from us. As Gandhi is famously quoted as saying, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Because your Christians are so different from your Christ. The world is ready and waiting to point out our inconsistencies. They are ready and waiting to point to where we don't walk consistently with what we say. So how do we move forward successfully? How must we behave 
if we're going to live a life as individuals and as a church that's worthy of the calling we've received? What are the characteristics of the worthy walk? How will we keep the unity of the body? Well, Paul considers, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And here's where the work is. Here's where the challenge is. I won't project myself on my own failings onto all of you. But I know I can't say that I live up to this standard. I can't say that completely in all situations, at all times, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, whoever the person is in front of me, whatever the time of day it is, that I'm completely humble or gentle or patient or that I always bear with that person in love. This is the challenge. This is what leads to unity. And what we see is it's a progression of behavior. It begins with our internal behavior, our mind and our thoughts. And then it moves to external behavior, which will ultimately lead to unity. I'm just going to run through them quickly. And if you're in a life group that's going to be following the sermon series, you're going to have time over the next several weeks to dig in to these different concepts in more detail. But humility is the first of the building blocks for unity. And humility is really the heart of Christian character. But there's no virtue that's more foreign to the way our culture thinks than humility. Because our culture exists and thrives on pride. Just think about the last time you wrote a resume or the last job application or school application you filled out or your last few posts on social media. We all tend to highlight and exaggerate the good parts of us. And there's other parts that we just don't let out into the light so often, aren't there? We even get trained in job interviews how to answer the question, what's your greatest weakness? And turn it around into a strength, right? To fill ourselves with pride. But we need humility. Because humility is what allows us to recognize and embrace our brokenness. And if we can't recognize and embrace our own brokenness, we can't be saved because we're all broken. And that's what Christ came to do. He came to save us in our brokenness. And when in humility we can recognize our own brokenness, we will be far more forgiving and far more patient with the brokenness of those around us in our church and in our communities and our workplaces and in our schools. In humility will lead us to meekness. And meekness really just means to be self-controlled versus self-assertive. To be self-controlled and not self-defensive. Meekness means that we keep our power under control. And the greatest example of this is probably found when Christ is in the garden the night before he's executed. As the soldiers come to capture him, he says, I could call down. 10,000 angels to rescue me. But I won't. 
because that's not what God's will is. Meekness is putting our power under control and making it subservient to the will of God. It's often used to describe a trained animal. There's a house a couple doors down from where we live that has this massive dog. It's scary. It wants to eat you. You know that when you walk by. Whenever you walk or run by this house and the dog is outside, it just goes crazy. And it starts barreling at you across the yard. And you're sure you're going to be dead in a moment. But then the dog stops. Because the dog's been trained not to leave its yard. The dog is meek. Its power is under the control of its master. And it won't exercise its power unless its master says it can. Our humility will lead to meekness. And our meekness will lead to patience. And we need to be patient. Because God's plan takes time. As we look at the biblical narrative, we see Noah and Abram and Moses and David. And we could go on and on and we see example after example of when there is time between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. So we need to be patient with God and we need to be patient with each other because change is hard. We must hold ourselves in control. We can't give in to our passions and our frustrations. Because just think about if God had given in to his frustrations with man, none of us would be sitting here today. And then ultimately, we need to bear with one another in love. We need to value those around us who think differently than who act differently than we do. We need to value people who don't seem to really understand us. And we need to think the best of them. We need to take every opportunity to seek understanding and to seek clarification before we jump to conclusions, before we make assumptions. When we love other people, we will have their best interest in mind and we'll sacrifice our own preferences for them. When you love somebody, you will do all sorts of things for them that you wouldn't otherwise do. For any of you who have spent a lot of time around a young child, you know that when you're with a young child, your love for them will cause you to do things over and over again. You'll answer the same question a thousand times and you'll do it gladly. You'll play the same game over and over again. You'll play the game to the point of exhaustion, and you'll enjoy it. So my sister-in-law is six years younger than my wife. And growing up, my sister-in-law's favorite game was sorry. And my wife tells the story of playing sorry over and over and over and over again with her sister. My wife hates the game. But last week, we were out on the West Coast with my sister, who is now 39 years old. And guess what game got brought out of the closet? When you love somebody, you will do things for them that you wouldn't otherwise do. And this progression from internal to external behavior, from humility to meekness, 
to patience, to love. As we manifest these characteristics and these behaviors within ourselves, we will keep the unity. And unity is our goal. We'll only accomplish the purposes God has for us as a church if we are unified. Our community will only be attracted to us if we are unified. They'll only be attracted to us if we are humble and meek and patient and loving. And so we have to ask, is that what our community sees in us? This is why the Apostle Paul says we must make every effort to keep the unity. As we move forward into a new year together, we have to ask ourselves and challenge ourselves. Are we making every effort to pursue unity together? Or are there places where we're still seeking our own agendas? As we come together as one church and work through our preferences on style and structure, we cannot let these things divide us. We need to be humble. We need to be meek. We need to be patient. And we need to be loving with one another and with the community that surrounds us. Because as a church, we can only facilitate unity. But we can't actually create unity. We can create services that bring everyone together. We can create common curriculum for our life groups to study. But those things by themselves will not create unity. Because unity is created by the Holy Spirit working inside of us, changing our hearts to make us loving towards those who are around us. And if we find ourselves in a place where there's not unity, then what we have to grapple with is someplace along the line We've put our own desires and our own preferences. We've put self back at the center instead of keeping God and his purposes for unity at the center. If we fail at unity, success everywhere else is really useless. This is why we needed to come back together as one church and with one purpose. Because while there were very successful things happening in our different services, and while there are successful things happening in our different ministries, the lack of unity and integration among them is destroying us from the inside out. Church renewal and community renewal is only possible when there is unity in the church body. And that unity needs to flow out of our knowledge into our practice through the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. This is our New Year's resolution. This is our journey towards one. This is the journey of our next chapter to reach a next generation with the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
I thank you for your Holy Spirit who is at work among us. I thank you that you have not gotten so frustrated with us to not want to call us back to you. I thank you for your purposes for this church. I thank you for each one here that is part of the body of believers here. I pray that you would knit us together in unity, that we would each allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, that we would develop spirits of humility and meekness, patience and love for one another, that you would knit us together into a light that shines brightly into our community. I ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.